Welcome back to Across the Movie Isle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I'm your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? Ah, uh, union strong, baby. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. Uh, first up in controversies and controversies, the WGA strike is over. More or less. Uh, at least the, ne- the negotiating committee has a deal with the AMPTP. Uh, it still needs to be ratified by the WGA board, and then it's got to be voted on by the members. And that's probably going to take another couple weeks to a month or so. But yeah, the strike is basically over, more or less. Uh, details remain scant. We're taping this, pulling back the curtain a little bit. We're taping this Monday afternoon. The The deal was made last night around 10 p.m. Uh, we still don't have a ton of details yet. Uh, here's what's trickling out so far. It sounds like the writers got a lot of what they wanted in terms of minimum staffing size for writers' rooms on TV shows uh, and like general overall raises. Uh, on the AI front, uh, one of the reasons the negotiations stretched into the late hours on Sunday, apparently, was over specific wording of how AI was to be treated. Sounds like the studios are going to maybe still be able to do a little bit of experimentation, but uh, much more limited than they had wanted. And it looks like the streamers will pay the creators of hit shows more, but also that transparency might not be quite what the WGA and others were hoping for. Again, we'll see what happens uh, when the details start coming out in the coming days. One thing the writers did not get, at least according to Matt Bellany over at Puck, was a dispensation to keep pens down until the SAG strike is over, meaning that writers are going to have to get back to work before the actors get back to work. Uh, The general consensus here seems to be that over the next few weeks, the actors will make a deal that more or less reflects the WGA deal, and that in turn means that production will start to ramp up around December. Maybe, hopefully. But I, I think SAG is, uh, I don't know, I think SAG's going to have a little harder time getting that AI stuff nailed down than WGA uh, was, particularly because they're using the actual likenesses of actors and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and it will be interesting to see how some of the performance-based pay bumps for streaming works out with them. Um, anyway, it's, it's hard to do too deep a dive into the weeds right now without more info. I'm sure we will return to this topic in the following weeks. Um, for now, I'm curious what you guys think that the term turning point in this fight was. I'll be honest, I think it's the moment when the WGA uh, either convinced or organized or bullied Drew Barrymore into pulling her show back off the air. Uh, That's when both sides realized nothing was getting done until a real deal was struck. But it's also... It's also why I think, frankly, there's been a lot of snickering on Twitter and social media about, you know, Drew Barrymore and Bill Maher. They just needed to wait one more week not to look like jerks. I think that's actually wrong. I think they had to be made an example of to show the studios that this was for real. Peter, what should we take away from the amount of time it took us to get to the point where the CEOs finally sat down and said, we're going to get this done? And uh, what should we think about going forward in the weeks ahead? It's a good question. It's not at all clear to me why it took this long. And there's a good uh, Richard Rushfield column in the Ankler today, basically just asking the question, what was that all about? This took almost six months. This is, uh, I believe, the second longest strike in a uh, writer's strike in Hollywood history, uh, very nearly the, the length of the strike in, I think, 87 or 88. And It's just not at all obvious why it took this long, because they were able to bang out a deal in under a week once they actually started to talk to each other, once they actually started negotiating. I think 
if I want to, if I want to br- imagine an explanation, if I, if I want to be, you know, be, and this is speculative here, I'm not in the negotiating rooms, right? I'm not in uh, studio executive uh, offices, right? So I can't tell you exactly what happened. But if I want to speculate, it seemed like both sides were just in really different places when they started and did not understand the mindset of the other side. And in particular, the studio executives did not understand that the writers were, in fact, pretty serious about AI, about uh, getting raises, about making sure that they were paid the way they want to be paid before going back to work. And so to some extent, I agree with your Drew Barrymore was the tipping point. I also think, though, the 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 rejection of the offer in August, the offer that the producers, negotiators made to the writers was a big turning point where they realized, oh, you can't just kind of force the writers to wait it out, make them feel, you know, make it hard for them to buy groceries for a couple of months and then offer them something that's a little better than the deal they would have had if they'd just done a, you know, a continuation of the previous deal, but wasn't what they were asking for. No, the writers are really going to be holding out for a uh, Maybe not every single one of their demands maximally met, but for an awful lot of it. And it took the studios a long time to figure that out. At the same time, it's also that the writers at this point are feeling the pinch of not working and they are ready to get back to work. I, I think once once you were in a situation where both sides were kind of deadlocked and didn't understand each other and didn't want to cooperate up front, then the only thing that was going to solve this eventually was attrition, was just people were going to get tired and everyone was going to see that the industry needed to get back to work. And it's not just that the writers needed to get back to work. And it's not just that the producers needed to keep making movies in order for their studios to make any money. It's also that the rest of Hollywood, which is a lot of the rest of Los Angeles, you know, one of the major cities, one of the major urban centers, one of the major economic centers in the United States, it's that the rest of Los Angeles and the rest of Hollywood needed to get back to work. And that's not, that goes beyond people who are represented by a union. And you really started to see just in the last couple of weeks, we talked about this on last week's episode, you really started to see a lot of coverage and a lot of focus on the non-union, often quite uh, low paid workers who are, who are just not going to, who are not going to benefit from this for the most part. Um, and who, spent six months not working uh, so that the writers could get their deal, you started to see a lot of coverage of them. And I think that probably pushed on the writer's side. Again, I, I go back to something, uh, Alyssa, that I was I was saying earlier in the strike, which is that like if this had been simply a strike about issues of money and raises and like normal things people know how to negotiate, there may not have been a strike at all or it would have been a fairly short one because, you know, that's the sort of thing that is easy enough to work out, even if it's painful on both sides, even if it even if it takes longer than everybody wants. You know, money is money and you you debate over money and you come up with a deal. But when we're when we're talking about like actual sea change things to the business, and I, I do think that AI and streaming residuals based on uh, performance of shows as opposed to just flat fees, those are big changes to the business uh, and, and things that had to be worked out. I'm actually not that surprised it took so long, particularly because the the producers had other guilds to negotiate with as as they went along. I mean, there's there is a universe in which the producers make a deal with SAG and then the writers hold out for another couple of weeks and then everything kind of comes into line. Uh, that was and, the plan was do the director's guild, do the actor's guild, and then that will bring the writers in. And right. the actor's guild going on strike blew that plan up. 
Yeah, I mean, that that seems to be the mis- big miscalculation here, right, Alyssa? I don't think anybody on the producer side expected the actors and the writers to go on strike at the same time. I think that's probably the case, and I suspect they underestimated the extent to which AI both felt like an existential issue to the writers and actors and the way that their position on AI would make them look in sort of the court of public opinion and in the messaging. Because, you know, it's not just that AI threatens to put a lot of writers or actors out of business if they're, you know, scanned into the cloud and are sort of infinitely manipulable. I think the fact that AI was emerging as a promising technology, but one that is still you know, not fully formed really worked against the producers because it made them look like they wanted to put the writers and actors out of work in favor of something that is impressive, but still kind of crappy compared to actual human output, right? And so, you know, it was much easier for the writers to say, like, look, they want to throw us on the trash heap so they can make crappy widgets for you. They don't care about the content that you care about. They don't care about the people who created it. They are willing to throw us aside in favor of an obviously inferior substitute in a way that that shows that they have contempt, not just for us, but for you. And I think that that was very important in keeping public opinion sort of largely on the side of the writers, which it you know, has remained there in public polling. And it enabled moments like the backlash against Drew Barrymore and Bill Maher that proved decisive, right? And look, we're in the middle of a big upswing in public support for unions. It's actually been quite dramatic. Um, And, you know, we're seeing that in the midst of a bunch of pretty militant labor action. You have organizing at Starbucks. You have these rolling strikes in the auto industry right now that have been handled in a way that's sort of flexible and smart, right? You know, um, the UAW is putting more pressure on a couple of the companies where it feels like it's made less progress, um, but holding off on Ford because it feels like the negotiations with that company are going better. And in keeping with the movie that we're going to discuss in a couple of minutes, you know, there is this sentiment that people are tired of being kicked around. And that has made it harder to peel off people like, you know, from saying, you know, you should view auto workers or folks who work in crappy retail jobs differently from people who are writing your television shows, right? I mean, everybody, you know, sees themselves sort of crushed under the boot heel of our AI overlords and other developments in the global economy. And, you know, there was a real downswing in support for organized labor in this country that has reversed fairly dramatically. And, you know, I think that the producers probably made a mistake in terms of just reading themselves as separate from larger labor sentiments in the country. And, And the writers hung really tough, right? I mean, there are a lot of writers who are on strike who don't make a lot of money, who, you know, are not able to, like, live in their gilded, you know, Ryan Murphy-style palaces no matter what happens because they have $300 million from Netflix or whatever. And 146 days is a long time to keep a strike going. They put the pressure on. And, you know, I think the producers just really underestimated how tough the writers were going to hang and how much public sentiment was going to stick with them. There are also, frankly, a lot of writers who are unemployed and who are frequently unemployed and who, I I don't want this to sound dismissive, but like going on strike is not necessarily a huge hardship because they are not in a working situation anyway, right? They're going 
to the picket line and and you but know. they were also able to I mean the fact of that means that their messaging can say like to a certain extent we're gig workers like the rest of you like we might get paid better when we get a shift you know in the same way than somebody delivering for DoorDash does but like we are part of the gigification of the economy and in a way we were there earlier than you were and so you know people can talk about you know not being employed all the time. And it's a very different kind of work. But again, just these larger developments in the economy made it much easier. The Writers Guild messaging much, much easier, I thought. I think Alyssa's totally right about AI and just the way it kind of popped up on everybody's radar very late last year or early this year as something that was like, whoa, this is a much bigger deal than uh, a lot of us really realized, even though we've been hearing about the promise of AI for 10 or 20 years, tools like MidJourney and the new versions of ChatGPT just turned out to be really impressive, kind of all of a sudden. Yes, yes, I know it's not just all of a sudden, but in public consciousness, it felt that way uh, starting very late last year and then early this year. And if you'd had the contract for the writers expire, I think, you know, in, in April of 2022. Totally uh, different ballgame. This negotiation might have looked very different. At the same time, there's another factor here that's relevant to the movie we're about to watch, which is I just think that that the pandemic really changed the 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 way a lot of people see and understand work and their own work and their own worth and what work is for. Uh, and it's very complicated across different fields. But one of the things the movie that we're about to talk about, Dumb Money, uh, does pretty well. Um, I think at its best, it is actually a kind of a, a little miniature period piece about COVID. And sh it shows how much harder it was for people who were frontline workers, who for people who were not particularly wealthy, uh, relative to people who had an awful lot, who were extremely rich, hedge fund types, um, and the kinds of lives they were living during the pandemic and the difference there. And I think that became somewhat more acute, even though, you know, for various reasons, uh, actually, the some of the poorest workers and some of the sort of the, the bottom 40 percent of earners actually ended up doing somewhat better and having more money in their bank accounts during the pan, uh, during the pandemic for various reasons. And and that sense of, wait, what am I working for? What even is life and time for? They just hit a lot of people because of the huge change in time and in, in, in the way that, you know, social life changed during the pandemic. I think I think the kind of that hangover. And that effect is driving at least part of what we are seeing with the labor actions, not just in Hollywood, but all over the country. Yeah. And look, the magnitudes of compensation, you know, the multiples that executives are making over their rank and file workers, you know, have gotten really obscene over time, right? I mean, the idea that an executive should make 300 or 500 times the amount of, you know, some a rank and file worker you know, I think it's been simmering along the effects, you know, like the difference in what that could buy you in terms of your life was made really stark during COVID. But I also think that in Hollywood, you know, that distinction, those multiples feel really stark because, you know, the writers and the stars and the directors have a good case that they're the ones who add value, right? Especially at a time when, the sort of titans of the industry have blown up their own business model sort of at the behest of Wall Street and do not seem like strategic geniuses. So, you know, I, I think that the Writers Guild strike, despite being in an industry that is very different from what a lot of other Americans experience at work in some ways, 
became a proxy for some larger issues in the American economy. I mean, just the financialization of sort of every business in the universe. The subservience to Wall Street totally divorced from, you know, serious, sober assessments of the value of a company or the worthiness of a business model. And, you know, I don't know that that sort of consciously played into everything that was happening, but I think it played to the writer's advantages. And look, we have to, you know, again, we're saying all of this not having seen the deal points and having some, you know, broad outline reporting from really good industry reporters and commentators. So maybe, you know, the sense that this is a sweeping victory will dissipate once those deal points emerge. But, you know, I think the the executives played this remarkably poorly and their conduct and the results might be a useful lesson for auto industry executives and people who are making a lot of money on the backs of their workers in other industries. Yeah. I'm slightly skeptical that this is something that the rest of the country is looking at and being like, I identify with the writers. I don't know that that's necessarily the case, but I do think it is representative of a general mood right now, which is like, you executives, you you messed up this whole thing. You You broke it. And yeah. you don't get to like take that out on our compensation package. Like, and, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, I think I think Sonny's right about that. It's not it's not totally clear to me that people identify in a really deep way with writers, but I think everybody is mad at power people in power and people in leadership right now. And it just sort of seems like there's a uh, at least a miniature generation of failed leadership all over the all over the American economy and government. Yeah, and. You know, to be clear, I mean, <laughs> this podcast is going to be interesting because I'm going to be slightly more sort of capitalist friendly than I normally am in an Across the Movie Isle episode. But, you know, I'm I'm somewhat more sympathetic to, for example, the auto industry executives. I think their compensation packages are bananas, but I do think the transition to electric vehicles is more necessary than the transition to streaming was. There are, you know, big forces in play there. It's a radically different kind of production that's going to require different workforces, different supply chains. And so those issues are legitimately really hard. But yeah, I mean, I think that across the economy, there is this sense that the old way is being done away with for good or ill, and people have not been sold a really compelling version of the future in their place in it. And that's going to make for a lot of tension and anxiety. All right. Exit question here. Is it a controversy or a non-troversy that it took so goddamn long to get the studio heads to actually just sit down with the writers and hammer out a deal? I mean, this is the thing that is most striking about all of this is that you finally got Bob Iger and uh, David Zaslav and the rest of these guys in a room with the writers negotiators. And like four days later, we have a deal. And maybe every, not everybody. But like, why, why didn't this happen a month ago? Why didn't this happen three months ago? I, I am I am flabbergasted that we are at this point. I say it's a controversy, but you, you guys go ahead. Peter. Yeah, it's a controversy. And uh, some of the reporting indicates that until that uh, initial offer from the producers was made in mid-August, that a bunch of the studio executives were basically just not paying any attention to this at all and were handing this off to subordinates. And that's crazy to me production 
was totally stopped. And yes, Disney has more to do than just make movies, but this is a huge part of their business is creating not just movies that sell for a billion, you know, that make a billion dollars to the box office, but creating original IP that is going to drive the company for the next several decades. And it's just nuts to me that Iger and others were not really paying attention to it at all. Yeah. Alyssa. I think it's controversial. And if I were on the board of one of these companies, I would be looking at the losses and at my executive's compensation and asking what they were getting paid for over the past 146 days if they maybe could have worked this out in 30. Yes. Controversy. Ridiculous that this took so long. All right. Uh, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode. We're going to be talking about the end of peak TV and why we might be seeing a retrenchment back to the mass market programming of the 1980s and 1990s and previous decades. All right, now on to the main event. Dumb money. It's re we're recounting the spectacular rise of the GameStop stock price uh, and the so-called ape investors who stuck it to the big hedge fund guys. That's what they called themselves, them to be clear. What's that? That's what they called themselves. That's not what Sonny's calling them. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, but the apes. It's, it's, it's not an insult, is, is my point. For for, for listeners it's a term who of don't endearment. know this, it's a term, this term of endearment. how they describe themselves. All right. Well, now you've interrupted me. You've interrupted my whole flow, Suderman. Dang it. Like an ape. All right. Uh, all right. I think there are two distinct ways to look at this movie, Dumb Money. Um, the first way is as a fairly straightforward underdog story. You've got Keith Gill, who's played by Paul Dano. Uh, he creates a mob of enthusiastic retail investors via his Reddit videos, uh, all of whom buy and hold on to the GameStop stock on his advice that it's undervalued. This costs the hedge funders like Gabe Plotkin, who's played by Seth Rogen, uh, and Ken Griffin, who's played by Nick Offerman, a lot of money. They, in turn, try to recoup their losses by shorting more stock and trying to drive down the price, which in turn leads to a snobs versus slobs revolt, as embodied by, in this film, you've got the story of a nurse, some college students, a GameStop employee. They all pour their money into the stock, which in itself, in turn, leads to the hedge funders trying to pressure the guys who own Robinhood, the app on which all of these apes, again, term of endearment, are, are using to buy the stock to, to limit the ability to buy GameStop, which angers them and causes them to go nuts. They're throwing ape feces around everywhere, right? That's what they That's what they do. Eventually, Gill is hauled before Congress where he reiterates that he simply likes the stock. Um, that movie, this this version of the movie, is frankly not that good, I don't think. It's, it's not that good in part because I don't think it does a particularly good job of explaining all this stuff and how it worked, but also because it, it skips over a very important detail, I think, in this whole story, which is that a lot of the retail investors got absolutely crushed when this stock came down to a more reasonable level. They got in at the height of the bubble and lost a lot. It's not that good because cinematically, that's just a it's just a very dull story. It's lots of people staring at screens and talking about stock prices and explaining memes. This movie is like the cinematic equivalent of trying to explain a Twitter beef to somebody. Uh, which if you've ever done that before, uh, if you've ever tried to explain why people on Twitter are fighting to somebody who's not on Twitter, it's the most humiliating thing you can do. It's really just an awful experience for all involved. And that's kind of what this movie feels like on one level. I think this is an incredibly interesting story. It's just not a cinematic story. That said, there is a second movie here. And uh, that second movie is something different altogether. This is one of the first films I've seen to really address the pandemic we all live through in a concrete uh, as opposed to metaphorical sort of way. The film 
is set in 2021 in the midst of lockdowns and mask mandates, and we see the different sets of priorities that the uber wealthy, the middle class, and the poor all kind of had during this time period. Like, for instance, Gabe Plotkin wants to buy the house next door so he can bulldoze it and put in a tennis court. Uh, Gil wants to make enough money to raise a child. The college kids want to alleviate family debt, et cetera, et cetera. Then we see also the isolation and the loneliness. The most touching moment in the film, the most human moment, comes not in front of a screen or near a stock ticker or talking about memes or any of that stuff, but at a simple gas station where nurse Jenny, who's played by America Frera, has a conversation with a stranger while pumping gas. They're outdoors. They're on mass. They're kind of dancing around the awkwardness of communicating with strangers for the first times in months. It's a deeply recognizable moment and sensation from that time period. Everybody felt weird and awkward. Nobody knew quite how to, how to handle it. And I, I am interested in the way this film deals with masking. I, I don't want to get into it too much here. Maybe we'll talk about it more later. But it is. I think he is doing something kind of interesting and subversive with it. If we're looking at the movie from this perspective, it is about how the pandemic drove all of us a little bit nuts and, and how that insanity manifested itself, at least in part, in the GameStop bubble. People found community on Reddit. They pumped their pandemic checks into the stock. They blew up its price. They warped the stock market far more than any of the big hedge funders were able to do and created this whole phenomenon. This movie is interesting. This movie about the pandemic and the weirdness it caused. Uh, what I'm saying here is that I'm kind of torn about it, Alyssa. I don't, I don't know about you. I am very torn on this movie. I think it's half really interesting and half not very good. What did you make of it? I felt kind of mixed about it and like you. And part of it, and this is where I'm going to depart from my normal like hippie liberal nonsense, it's very interesting to think about the journey from the big short to this movie. Because The Big Short is in part a movie about the value of short sellers um, to provide sort of a check and a correction on the market and to call attention to, you know, places where like bad stuff is happening in the system. And this is a movie that posits that short selling is just evil, but it obscures a number of facts about what happened in the what ended up being like a fairly effective short squeeze on the GameStop shorts, which is not only that a bunch of retail investors lost money, but that hedge funds got in on the short squeeze in a big way. In fact, Michael Burry, who was one of the big shorts of the housing market, got in on the like was long on GameStop and ended up, I think, profiting from the short squeeze on Melvin Capital and Citadel um, and Steve Cohen. And so the story of GameStop is a much more complicated story about the extent to which retail investors were kind of getting in on these sort of big, complicated financial plays by effectively sort of pooling their money and working together. But also there were hedge funds and, you know, this was hedge fund versus hedge fund to a certain extent. This is not just purely some sort of scrappy story. And, you know, it's a movie that sort of, you know, you have Gil saying like, I like the stock. He, you know, says that he's a value investor. But the movie doesn't really address whether or not GameStop is a good business. I mean, I don't know how much you guys know about value investing or how, I mean, I assume that most of our listeners have a basic sense. Um, value investing is sort of a philosophy pioneered by, or art best personified by Warren Buffett, who, you know, made his 
bones at Berkshire Hathaway by looking for businesses that had strong business fundamentals, but that were undervalued. And so, you know, early in the movie, you have Keith kind of rehearsing these reasons that he thinks that GameStop is undervalued, but the movie never really addresses them. And in fact, in these repeated scenes at a representative GameStop, it comes across as a kind of crappy company, right? It treats its workers poorly. It's trying to juice profit margins by focusing, you know, like pushing resale. It's basically trying to juice revenue. It's staying open under, you know, pandemic restrictions on like pretty flimsy premises. And so, you know, this is a movie that is much more interesting if it is willing to complicate Gil as a character, but I assume that makes it a harder sell as a movie. So I think as a sort of financial argument, it is credulous in a way that's really kind of unfortunate. But I agree that as a pandemic movie, it is much more effective. And, you know, look, I I think I've talked about this on here some. Um, my uncle and my grandmother died the first summer of the pandemic. They didn't die of COVID. But, you know, I we didn't have a memorial service for my uncle. I drove like four and a half hours to be with my mom and my dad while we buried my grandmother. And that scene at the graveyard where the Gale family is is visiting the grave is really tough and affecting. And that sort of loneliness, um, I think is something the movie captures really well. I, I do think it's weird that the movie just doesn't mention the stimulus checks at all, right? Because it's like, that's sort of where people are getting their money and making that connection between, you know, people suddenly having access to some cash, I think would have been more effective. It also suggests it, later in the film, there's a bit with America Ferrara's character where she's arguing that essentially a private infusion of cash from other funds is to Melvin Capital is a yeah. bailout. Or yeah. Arguing is not is a little bit of a strong word. She's a character who's ranting about they're getting a bailout. Where's my bailout? That sort of thing. And the bailout they're getting is another company is giving them money. It's not that the federal government is backstopping their operations. And in fact, eventually Melvin Capital did fail. It just failed uh, in early 2022. It more or less wrapped up operations. Yeah. And so I think it, I agree with you that it gets sort of the pandemic loneliness, but I do think it's kind of problematic that the movie ends with sort of one character who lost money and a bunch who made money and doesn't tell you sort of why that happened, right? I mean, it ends up looking like the Jenny character is just sort of dumb or credulous. And it doesn't tell you what Keith Gill did with his money, right? I mean, it doesn't tell you whether he cashed out. And in fact- Because we don't know. Yes. He like, he stopped posting in April of 2021. He's basically disappeared. And rather than sort of leaning into that like moral ambiguity, the movie kind of just lets it go. I think the treatment of Jenny's losses in this movie is actually even worse than that. I think it is portrayed as almost heroic. Like she is she is sticking with it. She still believes in it. She is still fighting the good fight. She's holding long. And like, I'm sorry. I find that extremely misleading. I really dislike the way this movie handles the average retail investor. I think it's dishonest in a in a very real way. Now, I, the movie could still work besides that. Uh, I, I, I frequently argue like getting reality wrong in a movie like this is not necessarily 
a problem, but the, the problem with it is that it just makes it a much less interesting movie. You have the sainted Gil figure and and his loyal soldiers, and like they're all great, and all the hedge fund guys are terrible, and I, that's it's just boring. It's boring black and white nonsense. Yeah, I do think um, I really enjoy uh, Nick Offerman as Ken Griffin. Because Offerman has built up this incredibly sort of fuzzy everyman persona and having him play sort of against the type that he's established as just like a cold weirdo is, I found that very enjoyable. Peter, I want to ask you this. Did you think he came across as a cold weirdo? Because I thought he actually came across as kind of like a normal guy who just happened to have $20 billion and was kind of amused to watch all of this happen in front of him. I don't think he came across as a normal guy because if you have $20 billion, I think it's actually, they said he was 16 or 14 was the number, as I recall. I don't have my notes in front of me. Uh, But he's the richest person who is portrayed by name in the movie, I believe. And I don't think he came across as normal exactly. I think the movie was trying to portray him as overconfident and out of touch. So every scene you see with him and Gabe Plotkin, he is just kind of subtly bullying Gabe. And we are supposed to understand that this is partly a result of the fact that one guy is worth just shy of half a billion dollars. Gabe Plotkin, we are told at the beginning of the film, has a net worth of $400 million. And the other guy is worth 14 or $16 billion. And that even at the level of I'm buying the mansion next door to me so that I can put in a tennis court uh, during the pandemic so my family can play tennis, even at that level of riches. by someone else. Yes, that like that there are still levels and layers of wealth that that exist. Right. And this is part of what the movie does, I think, really quite well. And I say this even as somebody who is probably less uh, overall concerned about like levels of of inequality than maybe Alyssa is. Uh, like the movie does a very good job of demonstrating how inequality played out in a specific circumstance where it really mattered, which was the pandemic. The Nick Offerman character essentially rents an entire resort so that his company can kind of keep operating and keep doing stuff, whereas. Gabe Blotkin is like, well, I'm just buying the mansion next door. Whereas America Ferrara, you see her at her house, like in her little tiny apartment, like which is very normal and very middle class. And she is at work every day working at, as a nurse while also trying to feed her kids and, you know, fill up gas in her 1990s beater car. Right. Like and desperately thinking maybe I could also have some sort of romantic entanglement with. Nope. Nope. That's not happening because she just she doesn't have time and all, all the rest of it. And the movie just does this paints those the, the gradations and those layers of of difference in how people's lives went during the pandemic so well and without it's both very obvious and also it doesn't beat you over the head with it and that's a kind of a tricky thing to pull off i liked this movie in spite of some very serious flaws and i think the biggest flaw is the one that you've already identified here which is that the story it tells is i think at least it's maybe not It's maybe not an intentional lie, but it is it's misleading and it's just a fundamental misunderstanding of what happened. And there's a version of this movie that could be told. I don't think it would be correct. That would be. But there's a version of this movie just based on on a cursory read of the evidence and even what you see in this film that you could tell in which Keith Gill, in which the hero of this movie is straightforwardly a villain. Because what Keith Gill did is make himself extremely rich, at least on paper at last we heard, 
by getting a bunch of other people to buy into a stock that, as far as we can tell, and this is not financial advice, but that just doesn't look like it's a very good stock. GameStop is still a troubled company that has been only kind of sort of propped up by the meme stock uh, mania. And it really kind of like there is a version of the story. Again, I don't actually think this is even correct, but there is an equally simplistic in negative version of this story in which Keith Gill sells a bunch of people on a on a junk stock. And then those people, they see their wealth, you know, sort of their their. their mm the value of that stock rise on paper, but most of them don't actually make any money because most of them got in as the stock price was rising and they didn't sell uh, at the top of the market. And I think it is probably the case that certainly uh, a very large percentage and quite possibly a majority of the people who participated in this lost money. Now, that said, the other thing that this movie is missing is a lot of people got in knowing that that was going to be the case. They understood this to be casino money. They understood this to be gambling. And if you were sort of watching the chatter around this on the forums on Wall Street Bets and et cetera at the time, the movie references this to some extent. But if you were watching the chatter about this stuff at the time, a bunch of the people who are participating in blowing up GameStop's stocks understood that it was a crazy idea and they didn't care if they took losses themselves. All they wanted to do was knock over some big rich person's company. And they wanted to do it because they were bored, because it was a pandemic, because they were weirdos on an online forum and they could. For the lulls. Yes, for the lulls. And that, that is something that this movie only barely gets at and doesn't really seem to understand is that this was not, this was not a noble crusade in a lot of ways. This was not a revolution in the way that finance is done. What this was was a, a bunch of bored people stuck inside with a message board and stimulus checks trying to do something epic and chaotic because they could. It was a fun casino. Yes. And I do think the movie- It was a casino in, w- in which the reward was not that you won anything, but if you lost money, like you might still take down a, a big rich company and like you could, right? It was, we can knock this over if we all work together and that will be fun. And you just saw during the pandemic, you saw a lot of manias play out, many of them with some sort of online component. Uh, in various levels of this is just funny and chaotic and this is actually terrible for the country. But that that period of time made people crazy. And this movie is about an incident in which I think people kind of got a, were a little stir crazy. And this is what they did with their with their craziness. But the movie doesn't seem to understand that the movie wants to treat this as something earnest and heroic and. Uh, you know, meaningful in in the world, uh, uh, you know, uh, an underdog story that, and it's just it's just not that. That said, it's often very human. I like the acting. I like the, I like that it is a movie about like kind of our times in real life. You know, and we don't see enough movies like that. I think there's far too many movies that we watch. Look, I love sci-fi movies and fantasy and all that, and great. Like, give me you know, starships and laser swords. But I also think Hollywood needs to make movies about our time, about the world we actually live in. And they need to try the, to tell them, to tell those stories in a way that actually captures something about real life, not just period pieces that are Oscar bait and horror films and fantasy movies. And this this, I give this movie extra points for its contemporary setting and for not completely blowing it. 
Uh, can I call attention to two small performances that I really enjoyed in this? Um, the first is Vincent D'Onofrio as Steve Cohen, yeah. who's just like objectively a strange guy. And, you know, I think D'Onofrio is often at his best when he's just playing a weirdo, right? And so he's like wandering around with his pig. He finds this whole thing kind of <laughs> hilarious. Um, and he's just like, he's just amusing himself, right? Like, and he's sort of the... He is Gil's counterpart in a way that the movie doesn't really do much of, right? But he's like, he's rich enough to just be amused. I mean, currently Steve Cohen is amusing himself by trying to turn the Mets into, you know, a contending baseball team. But it's just like, it's a nice little counterpoint. And then Sebastian Stan as Vlad Tenev. And I love Sebastian Stan. Like, basically, if he shows up at anything, I'm going to be more interested in it like his his interest above replacement for me is very high and so having him play this just like totally oily character (laughs) um is just extremely amusing I mean I think one of the best scenes is actually the one where he and his the co his other co-founder of Robin Hood are giving this media interview and are like clearly just bullshitting their way through this conversation with the financial journalist. And she knows that they're kind of full of it and she's asking the right questions about their business model. But then he manages to snow her anyway by sort of offering her some news about an initial public offering. And it's just like, it's very deftly written. It doesn't work without that performance by Stan. Um, And yeah, I mean, look, I think Craig Gillespie has a really nice way with actors. I, you know, I loved I, Tanya, which I thought was great um, and which Stan was also quite good in. Um, And so I wanted to like this movie more than I did. I did notice the thing that Sonny mentioned about masking. And this is like we should make this movie a conservative crusade because it's like mask enforcement, like all the mask enforcers are villains in this movie, right? It's like – I, I'm glad I'm glad you brought. I didn't want to bring this up because I didn't want to be the guy to do it. But the you know the standard conservative. No, prank it's super to interesting. It. But it is it's really interesting. And to have the GameStop manager who keeps bugging Anthony Ramos's character about his mask turn out to be Dane DeHaan, who's like who plays creepy characters so many times, is just Jedi Dane DeHaan. It's such a great note. The way masking is portrayed in this movie is not as a public health thing, but as an element of control, a way a way to uh, either assert. So, you know, you see the rich hedge fund guys, they are never wearing masks around the, the sometimes servants. Their staff, staff wear masks. Is wearing or their servers. Their servants. Servants and servers are always wearing masks. Those guys are not. And at first you just think, okay, well, maybe it's like them just being kind of dicks and like not you know, not caring about anybody else around them. But then when you get to GameStop and the, the you know, the really annoying, peevish manager who is played by Dane DeHaan, you know, is constantly telling uh, his employee to pull up his mask and, you know, keep it on all the time. It becomes very clear what it represents in this movie, which again, it represents the pandemic. It represents how people were made to act by others. I mean, it's really just, it is it is a fascinating little thing. And it is, again, I, I would argue that that is a genuinely subversive thing yeah. that the movie does um, that you don't see a lot of in movies. Yeah, and I, and, you know, I say all of this as someone who, you know, has like, still has a big stock of KN95s in the basement and wore them for a long time in part because like I was pregnant during the second year of the pandemic, but it is just extremely funny. 
All right. Conservative movie confirmed. All right. uh, So what do we think? What do we think about Dumb Money? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Peter. I think it's a movie with a lot of flaws, and I enjoyed it anyway. So I'm going to give this a thumbs up, despite being very critical of the way it portrays reality. Alyssa. Yeah, same as Peter, like a sort of tentative thumbs up. But also, like, sometimes short sellers are good. You know, it's funny. I I really went back and forth on this one when I was putting it on Rotten Tomatoes. And I was like, do I give this the fresh tomato or the splat tomato? I'm I'm honestly not sure. I went with fresh, so I'll go with the thumbs up here. But again, it's it is it is one half of an interesting movie and one half of a f- pretty poorly done movie, frankly. I always opt on the side of interesting, so I'll go with I'll I'll hype up the interesting here. Um, all right, that is it for today's show. Uh, many thanks to our audio engineer, Jonathan Siri, uh, without whom this program would sound much worse. Uh, make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys Friday. Friday.